This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. The Catholic Bar Association is an organization with close ties to the James Wilson Institute. Not only are Professors Hadley Arcus and Jerry Bradley, the co-directors of JWI, on its advisory board, but Professor Arcus was also the keynote speaker at the CBA's first annual convention. We're pleased to have seen the organization grow in the better part of the last decade, and in late October, JWI was a sponsor of the most recent annual convention of the CBA, held in our backyard in the D.C. area. We're pleased to bring you some discussions we shared with some notable figures at the conference. For our episode today, we're delighted to have on fellow conference attendee, Professor Kevin Walsh. Professor Walsh is the co-director of the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition, and Knights of Columbus Professor of Law and the Catholic Tradition at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America. He's one of the top figures at the intersection of originalism, natural law, and institutional authority to determine what the law means. We'll be chatting with him primarily about his work on departmentalism, the theory that each individual actor in the constitutional scheme has an independent duty to interpret the Constitution according to its own prerogative. Prior to joining Catholic law, Professor Walsh taught at the University of Richmond for 13 years. He previously practiced law at Huntington and Williams. Professor Walsh clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court and Judge Paul Niemeyer on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. He's a graduate of Harvard Law, the University of Notre Dame, and Dartmouth. His scholarship focuses on doctrines that define the scope of federal judicial power and has appeared in the Georgetown Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, NYU Law Review, and the Notre Dame Law Review, among other venues. We hope you enjoy the program. Kevin, it is a real pleasure to be with you here at the Catholic Bar Association. We're just thrilled to be able to um, get back together with you. The last time you and I were together was at a conference on parental rights a month ago, but we didn't have a time to really sit down and chat at length. But uh, it's a real treat just for the benefit of our listeners. Um, Kevin is one of the country's foremost scholars uh, on departmentalism, uh, an issue that we've discussed on this podcast before. Um, And it was actually sort of in that context that uh, I thought it would be um, beneficial for our listeners to hear from Kevin, because recently he shared a conversation with Justice Barrett uh, at Catholic University's law school um, that touched on some very, very uh, important themes uh, connected to the Supreme Court's own understanding of its legitimacy and where it gets its own authority. So, Kevin, might you tell our listeners a little bit about your conversation with Justice Barrett and what you discussed? Yes, and thank you so much, Garrett. It's very good to be here at the Catholic Bar Association's conference. It's to see you and to see so many old friends as well as uh, make new acquaintances of faithful Catholics living their vocation in the legal profession. This conversation with Justice Barrett was the inaugural 
judicial programming for our second year on the project on constitutional originalism and the Catholic intellectual tradition, or CIT, at the uh, Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. So there were many, many topics covered. It was very, very substantive. And people who want to uh, listen to the whole thing, they can find it on YouTube. The easier place, easier way to go, go is just cit.catholic.edu. So one of the things that I wanted to ask Justice Barrett about and was able to and got an answer was about this topic of judicial supremacy. But it was set up in some ways by saying, OK, you are on the Supreme Court now. You used to teach federal courts. Mm -hmm. You're a law professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. And you have views. You formed understandings based on your scholarship, based on your study of other people's scholarship. And that could include things like originalism, or it can include things like judicial supremacy versus departmentalism. And there were a couple of lines of questioning where the theme was, OK, this is how it looked to you then. Does it look the same way now? Mm -hmm. And that's how the topic of judicial supremacy came up in our conversation. So you clerked for Justice Scalia. Justice Barrett clerked for Justice Scalia. One of the most notable cases in which this question of judicial supremacy arose, maybe not while either of you were clerking for Justice Scalia, but it was in the uh, mid to late 90s, City of Bernie versus Flores. This is where the court had the ability to review um, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that had been passed in one of the states. Justice Kennedy, I believe, was the justice that um, opined most strongly on judicial supremacy. Can you, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us what Justice Kennedy said and how that kind of is a stand-in for the received wisdom on judicial supremacy? The Supreme Court in Bernie's in 1997 decision was reviewing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. This was a law that was passed in response to Justice Scalia had written the opinion for the court in Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, which uh, set a standard for the protection of free exercise that Congress mm -hmm. thought was not good enough, not sufficiently protective of the free exercise of religion. And it was something like a 97 to 0 vote in the Senate and a... Uh, a voice vote in the House. This is how popular this legislation was. And what it purported to do was reintroduce, as a matter of federal statutory law, the level of protection for free exercise that had existed under the court's pre-Smith case law. Right. So RIFRA uh, put, in the words of Michael Stokes Paulson's amazingly titled article, a RIFRA runs through it. <laughs> he said, well, all of federal law, and his article was about the application of RIFRA to federal law, but it applied to state law as well. A RIFRA runs through it, that is, for the actions of state and local governments as well as the federal government, they were going to be subjected to this heightened standard of review. And with the setup for the legislation being disagreement with the Smith case mm -hmm. and purporting to put in place a higher standard than was set forth in Smith, the Supreme Court was confronted in Bernie with the question of whether Congress had authority under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which is to enforce the rest of the 14th Amendment. In the states. In the states, yeah. right? Whether the application of RIFRA to state and local governments was within Congress's Section 5 power. Now, there's 
one thing that's not controversial. That is, Section 5 says to enforce the 14th Amendment. Okay, but what does it mean to enforce? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the really, I think, terrible part of Bernie was its judicial supremacy holding. Mm -hmm. And what they said was, the First Amendment means what we, the Supreme Court, say that it means. Okay, the, the meaning of the Constitution is equivalent to the doctrinal formulation that is given in the U.S. reports. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense in which that has to bear some relationship to the legal reality, but that can't be right. Uh, otherwise, when the Supreme Court overrules what it had done, they'd be amending the Constitution, right? right? When, they, right. When, they, when they make decisions, everyone understands that they're interpreting and implementing in certain ways. And sometimes you have these doctrinal structures that for a variety of reasons, uh, relating to judicial capacity, the relative competencies of legislatures and the judiciaries, different things, where we'd say, no, the judiciary's implementing doctrine need not be understood as equivalent to the meaning of the Constitution itself. Mm -hmm. So Justice Barrett uh, had been critical of judicial supremacy in a law review article she had co-written with John uh, uh, Copeland-Nagel, her colleague at, at Notre Dame. And so this to me was an interesting question when we sat down to talk was, so you were critical of judicial supremacy before you were a supreme, <laughs> right? But now you're a supreme, and uh, do things look to you now as they as they look to you then? That was the question. Yeah. Well, I, if I if I'm not mistaken, Justice Kennedy was invoking the uh, Cooper versus Aaron uh, decision, in which the uh, the court was asserting that just as it has decided Brown versus Board of Education, it is not to be um, questioned that it has the authority to decide what the meaning of the Constitution is, and therefore its ruling in Brown needed to be followed by the other political branches. Right. Uh, Cooper is a 1958 decision that, as you said, was implementing Brown, and it is the uh, sort of high watermark of the Supreme Court's declaration of judicial supremacy, right? That's where the, the, they were most clear about it. And the problem with that decision is that their bottom line, that is, hey, Governor Orville Favos, who's standing in the courthouse door, you will be subject to federal law, mm -hmm. right? That is, there's no problem with that. That outcome is right. But how do you get that? How do you make sure that state and local officials and others are implementing uh, federal law as understood by the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. And judicial supremacy, see, was this inflated concept that ended up standing in for these other doctrines, things like the law of judgments, the law of remedies, uh, vertical stare decisis. And so it, judicial supremacy, in one sense, isn't terrible. It's just if it's not bounded. So you might think of what I've called judicial departmentalism yeah. as a kind of bounded form of judicial supremacy. That is, instead of this one-size-fits-all doctrine that the Supreme Court declares something, and all of a sudden, if you or I getting sworn into the bar or sworn into an office, take an oath to support the Constitution, on the Cooper versus Aaron view, you and I and every oath-taker is taking an oath to the Constitution understood mm -hmm. as having 
the U.S. reports stapled onto the back of it, right? So that means if you disagree with Citizens United, you disagree with uh, the Heller decision, you disagree tough, you actually are taking an oath to, to support that. Mm -hmm. And that part doesn't seem right. There is a way, though, of ensuring that the Supreme Court's judicial interpretations are given the authority that judicial interpretation should have, and that is through the law of judgments, the law of remedies, and, and the law of um, vertical stare decisis. So before we get into how Justice Barrett responded to your question, um, which definitely opens up uh, some very fascinating um, uh, uh, threads, how do you distinguish, for the benefit of our listeners, vertical departmentalism from horizontal departmentalism? Or I'd say vertical, I, 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 let, me, let me answer how I would distinguish horizontal stare decisis from vertical sure. stare decisis. And these are uh, the, the binding power of a precedent. Uh, so you can think, let's do vertical first, so that you have um, hierarchies in judicial systems. So in the federal system, we have the federal district courts, we have the relevant circuit court of appeals, and then... Uh, at the, at the top, we've got the Supreme Court of the United States. So the courts of appeals and the lower, uh, the trial courts, those are, in the words of the Constitution, such inferior courts, right? So they are inferior. And, and the same uh, and, applies between the, uh, the Supreme Court and then the state Supreme Courts as well. That, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and the idea of vertical stare decisis would be that lower courts in a hierarchy are bound by the precedent set by the higher courts in the hierarchy. And what we could, we could say about stare decisis is that operates as a way of binding courts, binding the judges. Now, you and I, unless we get dragged into the federal courts as defendants or we voluntarily invoke their authority, you and I aren't bound by precedents. We don't have a judicial commission, mm -hmm. inferior or not. And uh, now we know, as we're advising clients <laughs> who could get in, in, into court, uh, whether they want to or not, right. <laughs> uh, now we know that then the, the, the courts that they get into will be bound by vertical stare decisis. So that's vertical stare decisis. Horizontal just refers to the binding effect of a decision by uh, a court on the same level of the judicial hierarchy. So the Supreme Court being bound by prior Supreme Court cases, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals being bound by Fourth Circuit cases, and so on. And so trial court judgments have no stare decisis effect, right? They mm -hmm. are persuasive. They are uh, good as persuasive authority, but there's no horizontal uh, stare decisis effect there. And horizontal stare decisis is usually weaker than vertical stare decisis because mm -hmm. it would be one court kind of undoing what it later came to see as a mistake. Yeah, and, and I think that's why when we talk about horizontal stare decisis, we're talking about the settled understanding of the law. And when we are uh, discussing it in the context of departmentalism, it would be how does the court view its decision as binding on the other branches, meaning in the Cooper versus Aaron ruling, the court understood itself as having final authority over the political branches on determining the ultimate meaning of the Constitution. Right, and they, yeah. and they did that in a, in a way that was utterly gratuitous. Right. That is, the governor and other officials had been made parties to the case below, and so the injunction that was operative in there, by virtue of the law of remedies, as mm -hmm. together with 
having jurisdiction over them as parties was sufficient yeah. to bring them into compliance or to have the to have the tools to bring them into compliance. And Justice Brennan, uh, I, I think he, he he he's responsible for for this part of it, but um, it was actually signed by all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opinion for the court says what we have said up to this point uh, is enough, but we feel like we should add. Then they got into all the judicial supremacy part. Now, part of what they were doing was trying to show their resolution and their commitment to a steady course, notwithstanding personnel changes mm-hmm. since the decision in Brown versus Board. And the idea was judges may come and go on the Supreme Court, but we are not going to let up in our enforcement of Brown versus Board. And what's a little bit unfair about all of that is that when people talk about Brown as a Brown versus Board of Education as a landmark decision, they usually have in mind what you and I might call Brown one. That is the the decision about uh, applying, uh, the saying separate but equal no longer applies in the educational context. Brown two, of course, was about the remedy. And I, I think a fair criticism of the Supreme Court actually was that they did not give clear enough guidance to lower federal courts on exactly how to implement this. And so it's a little bit unfair uh, not having provided enough guidance and enough backdrop that then when you see reactions and they're trying to counter them again, Mm -hmm. that they are arrogating more power onto themselves when they didn't make effective use of the tools they had. Right. And that the court is given the kind of historical um, uh, benefit of being at the vanguard of the civil rights revolution when, of course, you could argue that Eisenhower and and the uh, I forget was it the 101st Airborne uh, that integrated. It the, may have the been schools. the 82nd. 82nd it, and, and 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 it's right. They, they had you, so you had the 1957 to 58 school year. That's when when people talk about the Little Rock Nine and you see those 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 pictures mm-hmm. of the school children going in and the jeering uh, folks and the soldiers. Right. Yeah. So that was 1957 to 58 where you had that enforcement and it was in the summer of 58 looking ahead to the next school year Mm -hmm. right so there was uh, a lot there was a lot in play already and the Supreme Court I think was trying to 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 say well we're behind all of that but it's kind of like where were you a couple years before Mm -hmm. so with all that as the backdrop for the um, uh, history, uh, or at least the modern history of uh, departmentalism, because I think for the be- you know for, for our listeners who you know have been listening to this podcast for it won't come as old news that you know we understand the departmentalist position as being the found how the founders understood each actor in the you know federal constitutional scheme as um, having a duty to um, independently uphold the constitution. Lincoln was um, of course uh, you know tested in, in the most um, you know strenuous way um, in the Civil War about uh, whether or not if he swore an oath on March 3rd, 1861, he was defending the Constitution as the court understood it in Dred Scott or whether Lincoln was um, uh, uh, acting under his own you know, independent constitutional obligation when he swore an oath to under, understand the Constitution as, as indeed not being um, you know, a, a, the con- a Constitution that understood um, all men as created equal as endorsing slavery. Um, 
modern judicial supremacy is a debate that many constitutional lawyers understand as being settled. But what was it in your discussion with Justice Barrett that makes you think that, well, this you know sort of assumption that judicial supremacy, as the court understood it in uh, you know, Bernie, that maybe maybe there's there's some rethinking going on. I think that's right. Uh, I had asked Justice Barrett. Okay, now that you're Supreme, do you agree, do you continue to hold the views you expressed in this congressional departmentalism piece? And, and, and one of the views in that piece was that Congress could act on its own best understanding of the Constitution, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes they could actually also act on the basis of Supreme Court precedent that they thought was wrong, but that wasn't going to go anywhere, mm -hmm. and that, that that was still consistent with their, their oath to the Constitution. But that that for good reasons, they could act on their own best understanding. Mm -hmm. And to Justice Barrett's credit, Justice Barrett is the same as Professor Barrett oh. on this point. In fact, she even brought up uh, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will say that Justice Barrett did also say, although she sees the limits of judicial supremacy, the power of the Supreme Court still, in her view, includes the ability to bind lower courts mm -hmm. with vertical stare decisis. So, so, so she's not tossing that, and that would make sense if you're uh, at, the, at the top of this hierarchy mm -hmm. uh, to, to sort of surrender and say, no, no, that's not a power that we have to, to, to articulate the law in ways that are binding on, on lower courts. Mm -hmm. Whether they have that power or not, I think, is still a subject of, of some debate, but I say that that is more settled than judicial supremacy, Cooper v. Aaron style. Mm -hmm. And what's so fascinating about judicial supremacy versus judicial departmentalism or so-called bounded judicial supremacy is that when they are applying these other doctrines, like the law of judgments, another thing that Justice Barrett invoked, right? We say, oh yeah, a judgment has binding effects on the parties mm -hmm. <laughs> and those in privity with them that it doesn't have on non-parties. That's, that's right. right. That, that's what everyone thinks except for Professor Paulson, who thinks that indeed even the parties themselves in the Merriman context uh, may, might not even be bound, although he is he is alone in that view. And the Merriman's a complicated one that we sure. ought to, uh, to set to one side just because it would deserve its own its own treatment. But we, but we have we have doctrines that deal with this. We have law about the ways in which judicial decisions are binding. Mm -hmm. And that law has a lot of details to it, and those details really matter. And I guess that's not unexpected, right? Or we might expect a federal courts professor, a former federal courts professor, now uh, exercising federal jurisdiction mm -hmm. to think that those rules matter and that judicial supremacy, Cooper versus Aaron style, is kind of a, uh, an, a, a, a cheap substitute for the real thing, the real law about the binding effects of judicial decisions. Yeah. And that naturally brings us to the discussion of how judicial supremacy is woven up with the idea of the court's integrity, but also the court's authority to um, uh, command the other branches to respect its decisions. When City of Bernie versus Flores came down, that was when the court was ideologically split evenly. It was not thought of as a court that was tilted one way or the other. Justice Kennedy was the swing vote. Maybe you could have called that, you know, in the late 90s, that era in which, you know, neo-federalism was taking hold. 
But I think that you could neatly distinguish the court of that era from the court now, which has a somewhat durable originalist majority. In the era of uh, City of Bernie v. Flores, we had the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision still as you know good precedent, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey also invoked the authority of the court to be able to settle with uh, 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 finality uh, its authority uh, as um, determining what the law is, and this was in the context of abortion. Now we have, though, a court that would be attacked for being a judi being judicial uh, being judicial supremacist, perhaps from the left. Back then, it was mostly critics on the right questioning whether or not the court could articulate a reason for having the binding power to foreclose the political branches as for you know foreclosing the, the law on abortion, right? But now we have threats to the court from the left proclaiming that the court in Dobbs does not have the ability to remove the right of a woman to seek an abortion. How does that color in this discussion? Aside from your conversation with Justice Barrett, how do you think this colors in the discussion of the court's authority and whether or not you know, right of, thoughtful right of center constitutional lawyers should be making arguments about the Supreme Court's um, questionable grounds for articulating you know, what the law is from a judicial supremacist background when the very legitimacy of the court is being questioned by actors right now on the left. It's hard to fault people uh, who don't think that carefully uh, before they talk about the Supreme Court because there's so many of them. Uh, and, and so I think, though, a lot of times it's good to just pause and say, can I generalize this across decisions that I agree with and disagree with, right? So one of the uh, points that we might think about in terms of judicial supremacy versus judicial departmentalism is to take two decisions uh, that are viewed as awful by different sets, often different sets anyhow. So uh, for, for students, I might, I might say some of you may think Roe versus Wade was horrible. Some of you may think Citizens United was horrible. You might think both are horrible. You might think both are right. But, but the anti-judicial supremacy view says when you take an oath to support the Constitution, it's the best understanding of the Constitution. And you're, if you hate Citizens United, you're not binding yourself to Citizens United. Okay? And I think people can get that. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they understand. So I think uh, criticizing the court for getting it wrong, that's an all-American thing to do. And what's fascinating about Dobbs and Casey and Roe is Dobbs really ought to be a, a teaching moment for those who would put more hope in the court than the court can possibly sustain. Part of the great distortion of the court's abortion jurisprudence was uh, to foreclose different types of things so that the stakes got higher and higher for every single federal judicial appointment and it infected everything. I think there is a healthy sense in, at which to say the courts cannot be counted on in some ways. Uh, and so if they have occupied constitutional ground that they had no place to be, we should be happy that they have yielded it back, mm -hmm. uh, that they've yielded it back to the people and, and their representatives. Uh, and at the same time, what they haven't given back, right, is all the other authority that they have as a result of exercising their jurisdiction, as a result of entering judgments, as a result of granting remedies. And I think some of the attacks on the court would just go to the judicial power itself. Mm -hmm. 
because you don't like where they uh, where they end up on any particular issue. And I'd say, if you don't like where they end up on a particular issue, that is the reason to criticize them on the merits right, of yes, that on particular their, on issue. The, on the persuasiveness Absolutely. of the ruling and how persuasive that ruling would be on the political branches, qua, whatever the political branches want to you know, view as an extension of their power post the ruling. It's, right, it's not this matter of, are we going to question the outcome as it pertains to these two litigants? No way. Right, that's, but if, that's if, firmly within the court's if you have a if you have a sense that the Supreme Court is doing things uh, that you don't like, welcome to the club. Right. Right. <laughs> the, 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 this is this is not. Uh, 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 this is not. A, a small club of, of, of people, and we have all different kinds of disagreements, but there's a difference between disagreeing on the merits and the other by saying that the judicial power is not to be respected. The judicial power is deserving of respect precisely as judicial power, and it's because judicial supremacy understood as an unbounded thing that only the Supreme Court has. Uh, it's precisely because that's such a pernicious view that, that people ought to criticize it and ought to uh, welcome when there are justices who are willing to say, no, we're not going to claim that for ourselves. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Kevin, where can our listeners read more of your work, see what you're working on next? Well, I'd send them over to cit.catholic.edu because the... the uh, the second year of CIT is, is up and running. There's a lot going. And I have been for 13 years at University of Richmond. And one of the reasons uh, that I left was not for any dissatisfaction with Richmond, but because what we're doing at the Columbus School of Law, Catholic University of America, is so exciting. So I'd say go there. Who cares what I'm writing next? <laughs> Look at we, what we're up to as a team and what we're building at Catholic. Oh, you're, you're far too humble. Uh, Professor Kevin Walsh, thank you so much for taking some time on our Anchoring Truths podcast. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.